see if I can set the scene for you. <clears throat> it was a lovely, warm spring day. They're not too far away. And you could smell uh, the freshly cut kind of clip of the grass and, and the mountains, uh, ranges of like Falls Creek and Hotham and, and a bit further south, um, Mount Buffalo, uh, rose up in the backdrop of the Kiwa Valley. Light, cumulus clouds dotted the sky. It was postcard stuff. A crowd of about five to 8,000 people, depending on who you listen to, were gathered there around this freshly mown grass, this nicely clipped grass. There was an electric atmosphere that circled this field. Brewing away in a renovated cattle shed uh, was a storm of gathering fury. 21 men preparing to go into war for the next two hours. On the line was the TDFL 2000 Seniors Premiership. This group of men were the underdogs, too old, too slow, too outgunned by a younger, faster, more superstar, studded lineup from down the road at Barnawatha. The verdict was in. All the local papers, all the local radio stations convinced that Yakandanda could not win the 2000 uh, TDFL flag. And just before halftime, it seemed that they were all right. Trailing by 44 points, the Rubaggers seemed gone towards halftime. However, a couple of sneaky goals just before halftime reduced the margin to a mere 31 points. But nevertheless, the Barney boys were over there popping corks and celebrating. They, they thought they were home. But another tight-knit huddle, a group of men who had been here before, who had grown to have an unshakable confidence in their game plan and in the men around them, knew that if they held their nerve, knew that if they never wavered, they would prevail, as unlikely as it seemed to everyone around this ground. Supporters were leaving, unable to watch the carnage any longer, throwing their shoes and pom-poms and whatever else they brought to the game to support these lads. It was just 21 brave, confident souls against the world. Confidence, something in, confidence in someone or something can will you on. When those around you see no signs of life, see no hope for the future, see no point in your presence, confidence, an unshakable conviction. For us, it was in our game plan and in the, and in the lads who were around us. A commitment, a confidence to each other would see one of the greatest comebacks in TDFL history as Yakandanda rolled over the top of Barnawatha to win by a comfortable 11 points. Monday morning, the papers would report Coach Ross Headley told humble outlets that not once did the boys lose confidence. It's a self-indulgent story. But it's one of my favourites because I'm in it. But because, but because despite all appearances, despite what everybody else saw, we had a confidence. We were confident about, confident about our game, confident about each other. And we knew that if we stayed in that, if we stayed there and didn't flinch, it would stand up. Confidence, an unshakable certainty in something or someone will allow you to win a game of football. But in life, it will allow you to live unashamed and unafraid. As you face whatever situations and circumstances that you find yourself in, a marriage, a job, school, 
maybe even persecution over your faith. But it must be a confidence in something worthy of that trust. Well, Luke wrote this gospel, this gospel of Luke, with that purpose in mind, that you would encounter Jesus and find in him an unshakable confidence for your soul, an unshakable confidence in which to do life. The Christian life is confidence in Jesus, in what his claims are, in what the promises are that he has made. Confidence that his life, death and resurrection are God's game plan for the salvation of humanity. This confidence forms the conviction to live a faith uh, that is unafraid and unashamed. In today's passage, Jesus addresses his disciples to press on them that their confidence needs to be in what Jesus has to say about God and about our relationship with him. Confidence in Jesus' teaching here enables us to live unashamed and unafraid in our approach to our faith and how we live in the world. Luke has been recording and we've been going through it, this escalating tension between Jesus and the religious leaders. And at the same time, there's a rise of notoriety uh, about Jesus between him and the crowds. The road to Jerusalem that Jesus been, has been on uh, since back in Luke 9:53, where he turned his face towards Jerusalem, has become a road of increasing danger and threat with the relationship with the religious leaders and and increasing notoriety with the crowds. The teachings that Jesus has been delivering as he travels towards Jerusalem keep coming with increasing demand to examine your life against his words, to make choices about who and what you are in relationship to what he is saying and doing. Well, this made for a very uncomfortable dinner party where Jesus called out the deadly hypocrisy of the religious leaders, their love of performance of the law and how that kind of brought perks and, and, and things in, into their life. But with that, the absolute lack of intimacy with God, which then allowed them, the, while they were keeping certain rules, allowed them to ne- neglect the bigger things of God's heart, justice and mercy, the things that the law actually prescribes well if the religious leaders hadn't choked on their food they were preparing in their hearts to make jesus the next course to be devoured luke tells us that after this dinner party back in chapter 11 that the scribes and the pharisees began to press jesus hard to provoke him um sean spoke about it last week to speak many things lying in wait uh, for him to catch him out in something that he might say The temperature on the road to Jerusalem has risen. And now to be in association with Jesus, to be one of his followers, and not just one of the curious spectators, is becoming a costly association. Choices around following Jesus now seem to be a little bit life and death. Jesus, aware of this, now turns to his disciples with a framework for confidence. And strangely, tucked away in this framework, is, in this game plan, if you want, is a particular type of fear that allows followers of Jesus to be able to live unafraid and unashamed in the face of hostility, in the face of ridicule, uh, with the challenge of compromise before them. 
Luke begins in verse 1. I'm sorry, my, I couldn't get... I actually made a PowerPoint this week, but we couldn't get it up. Uh, Luke begins in verse 1. In the meantime, while these religious pretenders are scrambling to save their own positions and privileges through working out how to get rid of Jesus... So many thousands of people had gathered to see and hear Jesus that they were trampling over each other. It's an odd detail that only Luke has in his gospel, but it's the kind of detail you get from an eyewitness as they describe the activity about Jesus on the road to Jerusalem. Man, you should have seen it. People just clamoring over each other to get to Jesus. I will never forget the scenes outside. That's what we're dealing with here. Despite the rising tension that exists between Jesus and the religious leaders, there is still an appetite uh, from a street level for Jesus. Maybe it's the edgy relationship that he has with the religious leaders that has him trending uh, on social media, that has people clamoring uh, with a sense of astonished curiosity. You know, a kind of what's Jesus going to do next? Kind of bated breath. We're all waiting to see uh, what he's going to do. There's a scandalous kind of entertainment side to the ministry of Jesus. And of course, there's always the fact that Jesus is indiscriminating with his compassion, with his justice and his mercy. He has no rules or no barriers on who he will heal. He heals the sick. He restores sight to the blind. He cures the incurable. He overpowers spiritual oppression. He lifts up the poor. He brings in the outcasts. He moves towards the sinners to transform them. So you may even receive a miracle while you come and watch the show. But Jesus is not interested in being a fascination or a sideshow. He is interested in building confidence into those who would place their faith in him so they would be unafraid and not tempted to to kind of act in a way before people to gain acceptance or not to come under scrutiny like the Pharisees did. Jesus wants to build confidence so they would be unashamed of him and not sidestep or avoid conversations or things about Jesus or or even deny association with him when the opportunity to compromise comes to our lives. Jesus wants to build a confidence there. So in this crazy environment, Jesus gets alone with his crew, his disciples, and he addresses them personally. Beware of the leaven, uh, verse 12, be there, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Jesus knows One thing his followers will face is the temptation to conform and comply amidst rejection and persecution. The temptation is to ease the persecution by adopting the practice of hypocrisy, having two sets of standards, an external set and an internal set. But this can come at the cost of destroying intimacy with God. It actually reveals that you have no fear of God. It actually shows that you lack trust in Jesus. It is living a divided life where Jesus is Lord of your language, but a spectator over your soul. It reveals that you fear people more than you fear God, which Jesus is going to say is just crazy. Jesus' use of leaven or yeast as a metaphor for how hypocrisy works, would have been a little bit more familiar to his audience than it is to us now. Not many of us still make our own bread, unless you've got a thermo mix, I imagine you're still having a crack at it, but not too familiar with how 
uh, leaven or yeast is this little powerful but small ingredient that transforms the whole batch of dough. Kind of gives the dough a life, if you like, an expression. The Bible, you know, in the Bible, it is a common image for something small that spreads silently, almost secretively, but ultimately pervasively. And Jesus will use it positively in Luke 13, we should be there March next year, to describe the kingdom of God. However, its Old Testament background, its its usual use is, is often a negative one, often relates to sin. Phil Riken points out that Jesus' use of it here is, is to describe hypocrisy, the reality gap between the outward appearance of godliness that we kind of like to polish up and the, and the sinner that lives inside. Living, living with allowing that reality or, or lack of connection there can grow in us like yeast in a dough. Jesus is saying to the lads, be careful where you place your confidence. Uh, in, in accolades of the crowd uh, or over a relationship with me, don't let that seep into you. Don't let your hearts become divided around where you place your loyalties. Don't let it creep into you as yeast does. A double life is destructive to your soul. And not only that, or because of that, it's an empty security and actually ignores the fact that God sees all. Beware, guard your heart against this. Spiritual hypocrisy is, is easier than you think. Like I can affirm quite, quite comfortably, quite easily, a biblical view of what marriage looks like biologically and then at the same time, fail to love my wife as Christ loved the church. I can stand proudly on a particular distinctive that I can cover off easy, but neglect the fact that I am a train wreck at the fundamental kind of base and heart of God's design for marriage. Easy enough to do. I might practice a biblical view on on the details of tithing my money and at the same time neglect or have no heart for the use of that money to connect God's people with God. It's what it's doing here. And then to connect God's people with the needs of the world. That's what it does as it moves out from here. So rather than being joyfully generous, I am controlling and, and, and measly and I manage it myself i might say i'm a follower of jesus and roll through the lord's prayer every morning and yet hold a grudge against someone i might pray give us this day our daily bread and then go and place my security in my bank account in my job in my assets god is not my practical confidence and security i am Spiritual hypocrisy also creates all kinds of divides because the hypocrite has to justify and judge all the time in order to feel approved. So it kills relationships. It closes down hospitality and it isolates you. It leaves you insecure and fearful. The hypocrite essentially says, I can manage God. There's no fear of God. There's no awe of him in them. The follower of Jesus says, my heart needs managing. There's humble dependency. 
and confidence. Jesus is saying, guard your heart here. Be on guard that you don't find yourself settling for religious practice while, re- while neglecting relational intimacy with God and, and your neighbor. Jesus is saying, be consistent. Have, have a good eye as we looked at a few weeks ago. Make sure the light in you is good light. It's the only thing that will actually hold you in place, give you the confidence to stand. In verses 2 and 3, Jesus gives a negative evaluation, a warning of what will happen to the heart that allows hypocrisy to mature, to, to grow like yeast. It'll be found out. It will be made public. What is done in the recesses of a dark heart will be exposed by the light of judgment. And here Jesus begins to lift our eyes and our thinking from the idea that we are autonomous, self-governing, ethical beings to the fact that our lives are known and examined by God. By a God from whom nothing is hidden. Here Jesus is cautioning us. All things, everything of the heart, everything of your life will one day be examined, will one day be made public. And while this is a negative picture, it also offers a great source of confidence. If you live an authentic life, if you keep hypocrisy in check, you can live unafraid. There is nothing to fear. And if you've ever wondered if justice will come to those who conceal evil in this world, Here it is. Nothing is hidden. No one gets away with anything, so to speak. Jesus makes this decent side jump from warning against hypocrisy, uh, the hypocrisy of the Pharisees as something not to emulate but rather reject, to persecution that leads to death. And down in verse 12, we see that this will take place. You're going to be in public trials. This is a real reality. Jesus still speaking to the disciples now, but now he calls them friends, which is an expression of confidence in itself. This is pastoral. He continues as he speaks to his friends the themes of uh, cosmic sovereignty of God and the limited power of humans. And note here that Jesus does not actually guarantee protection from death, but rather that God alone controls the final destiny of people and that people should fear him rather than those who can inflict physical death. Jesus ever the realist says, uh, yeah, you, you may be killed by someone in a place of power, in this case, religious leaders, but God's intimate grip and knowledge of you is not severed or disrupted by that, by death. It is merely made permanent. Well, will they have the confidence to stand with Jesus, unafraid and unashamed? Or or will they lack confidence in what Jesus has said? A confidence that Jesus says down in verse 9 leads to being welcomed into heaven by angels. What a lovely picture. Or a lack of confidence, uh, being ashamed about Jesus, and and in doing so, stepping into eternity. An eternity that Jesus describes here in this passage as hell. Or in verse 5, Jesus is constantly pressing us, constantly, all the way through this narrative, that choices about him matter. They are not inconsequential. 
The word that Jesus uses here to describe hell, Gehenna, is a word that would bring uh, into the mind of his Jewish friends the Valley of Hinnom. Now, the Valley of Hinnom is a ravine uh, that literally borders around the southwest of Jerusalem. And it was used at this time as a rubbish dump where waste material and dead criminals were disposed of and discarded. And it was usually on fire, uh, sulfur and burning to control the smell and and the buildup of the waste. Just burn it down to the ground. It was also historically a place where wicked kings had earlier in Israel's history used it for the worship of Moloch, which included offering children, children's sacrifices in burnt offerings. It was a repulsive place to the Jews. And Jeremiah had labeled it as a place of future judgment in Jeremiah 7 and in 19. The idea that this valley was an analogy for punishment after death had developed quite strongly over the past 400 years. Jesus uses it to teach unambiguously that judgment and hell are realities and they are ones that God alone has authority over. Jesus could not have painted a more grisly, dishonorable outcome for the one who places their ultimate comfort, confidence or, or fear in human power rather than God's. Jesus says the relationship that needs to be the one that you place your confidence in is one with God. He alone is the one you should fear being at odds with. Not powerful people, not social influence, not the latest social imagination. It is God whose authority extends beyond death. Human authority is limited. God's is not. Jesus speaks of this relational priority of fear and its outcomes five times. It's something he does not want his friends, his followers, to left unexamined. Now, this fear of God is a reverent respect and awe. We recognize that there is distinct differences between us and God. We are sinful. He is holy. We are limited. He is finite, worthy of worship. And that this God holds the power of eternal judgment. It's a fear of God that conquers all other fears though. Because the person who fears God fears no one else. This is not a fear that keeps you at a distance. But it is a fear that allows you to be drawn in. Because it it shapes an approach to God that allows for intimacy, worship and confidence. God can be approached. God can be known. But not carelessly. Not flippantly. You can't manipulate him. And you are certainly not his equal. Friends, fear of God is what gives you eternal confidence. It's what allows you to be unafraid and unashamed of your faith. Fear of God and his presence brings an incredible comfort and confidence to the soul. Jesus shifts the focus from God's sovereign and ultimate authority in judgment to God's sovereign and unlimited knowledge and presence uh, as a confidence of his care for your soul. In verses 6 to 7, Jesus turns to the order of creation. He kind of looks out at the creation that God has put together. That even in that, even something that is uh, pretty much worthless to people, a sparrow, which he says gets sold, uh, you know, five for two pennies, are cared for by God. God has organized the cosmos 
to ensure that they have, even these worthless little sparrows, have everything they need. Jesus' point based in creation order is that God's care for you as a person created in his image is of far greater value. Even that of many sparrows, just in case there's someone out there who's looking for a caveat, like, what about 20 sparrows, Jesus? Yeah? No, there isn't one. Jesus is reminding his disciples of their supreme worth in the eyes of God, and you and I are no different. Stop and think in every situation and circumstance, every dark moment, every threatening environment. This should, should warm your soul. You are fully known by God and you are deeply loved by God. In this passage, there is a constant pulse of not worrying, but having confidence. You are more, worth more than sparrows, even many sparrows. Have confidence because God's knowledge of you is so detailed, so intimate, that he even knows the numbers of hair on your head. Now, obviously, this is not too hard an assignment for some of us, but the point stands. God knows you have no hair. God knows that old age has seen a shift in appearance that your genetic code has kind of let you down, if you like, or your genetic code has led you to having raven hair or red hair, thick hair or thin hair, <clears throat> loss of hair, no hair. In my sister-in-law's case, God knows that her hair on her head has been decimated by ray and chemotherapy. God knows about something as common and boring as the hair on your head is the point. The details of your life are intimately known by this God. Your wrestle with mental health, your diagnosis about a terminal disease, your concern for your kids, a growing distance or tension in a marriage, your grief over a loss of relationship, your struggle with pride and hypocrisy. Fear of God brings you under his care, draws you into his presence, and keeps your heart singly confidence in his goodness and care of you. You will never live in confidence, unafraid and unashamed, if you don't know this. God knows you and loves you intimately. Jesus knows that your Jesus knows that the convictions around fearing God, making him the highest relational priority, is going to bring his disciples, is going to bring you and I into hard decisions, ones that will cost us social acceptance, uh, ones that may mean loss of friends, family, jobs, who knows, opportunity, may even bring you before the courts, that's what's on the plate here, may even have you facing death. So Jesus says down in verse 12 that even in the most destitute moment, his provision is there. The Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. The Holy Spirit, which has been the source of your life, will also be the source of your confidence. Time invested into fearing God, into developing and cultivating a relationship of intimacy and knowledge of God and his word is never wasted time. And this is the resource from which the Holy Spirit will draw to give you confidence in the moment. To not be unafraid, to not be unashamed. Let me assure you that if you never spend any time knowing God, understanding his word, time with the spirit on your soul, 
He's not a magic. He's not, it's not a magician. What you put in there, he will use. The more time being shaped by Jesus, the more time spent understanding what it is to fear God, the more it allows you to live unafraid and unashamed. And it's the well from which the Holy Spirit draws to instruct you on what to say. God's care of the disciples has been general up to now. But down in verse 12, it gets specific. Nothing in the Holy Spirit will aid you to give an account of your faith that you have. To give an account of why you trust Jesus, why you fear God, rather than deny Jesus and speak against the work of the Spirit. They will be ready to speak through the Spirit in that moment. In verse 8, Jesus once again outlines that there is uh, something more to lose than comfort and ease of this world. Everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will also acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. Again, here is a great confidence. Those whose lives have been ones that bear witness to the dependency on on and, and fear of and an intimacy with a sovereign God, those whose lives have been transformed and shaped by trust in Jesus as the Savior of their souls, will find those relationships intact eternally. Not even death can disrupt them. But those whose lives have placed their confidence elsewhere, have feared the hand of man rather than the heart of God, will find that death brings them into a judgment where their relational priorities, where the denial of the Son of Man will be honoured. Yeah, we don't know each other. You're dead right. It's important to note that this is not merely about a moment here or a moment there, but a life approach. It's also important to note that you can deny Jesus in more ways than just spoken words. The hypocrite can confess Jesus and yet deny his rule over their heart, deny what he wants to do, how he wants to transform and shape the heart to be like his, to be like the Father's. Well, in verse 10, things kind of ratchet up a bit. Jesus warns of where a life of persistent denial leads. Now it seems that Jesus says there's this point of no return and it's a chilling statement. You can have your opinions on Jesus and his claims and, and him calling himself the son of man is one of those claims as he does here and it's a claim to divine authority and Jesus links calling himself the son of man to being able to forgive sins. He links it uh, to being able to be the one who ends suffering and he links it to being the one who can transform sinners. You can, you can speak against Jesus and what he has to say but if you blaspheme the Holy Spirit, you've hit a point of no return. Now, debate exists on whether blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is attributing Jesus' work to the devil like happened back in uh, chapter 11, or is it renouncing Jesus due to persecution, or is it the coming rejection of the message, the gospel that the apostles will speak, or is it uh, persistently rejecting the message of the gospel and the work of the Spirit to apply that into your heart. Now, I think this last one, uh, as it ties in the first one a little bit, is what is being spoken of here. Basically, Jesus knows that he is a hard pill to swallow. There's a lot, of, there's a lot to weigh up when it comes 
to what he has to say, the claims that he makes. And in Jesus' day, it was around scriptural legitimacy. Can a prophet come from Nazareth? Can a person claim to be God? Can he relate to God like a father? Does he have the same authority and power over humanity as God? Can a mere man forgive sins? These are the light matters that people were throwing around and having conversations about it. And some people were like, give me a break. I think he's a great teacher, a little edgy, but certainly authoritative. But the son of God, yeah, nah, too far. Jesus is saying, this is all fine, probably good at some level. You should be weighing up the evidence. You should be having conversations about me. There may even be a point in time where you say, no way. I don't buy into that crazy rubbish. You might at first say, this Jesus is out of his tree like his brother James did, who would then go on to become the pillar of the New Testament church. You can speak a word against the Son of Man and still be forgiven if you end up not rejecting the Spirit's persistence to continue to work in you to bring you to faith. The Apostle Paul is a great example of this. He railed against Jesus but would later come to faith. But we can have similar conversations and antagonisms Is Jesus real? Did he do the things the Bible said he did? Did he really say hell was real? Do we need to be forgiven of our sins? Should we really fear God the way he says? We can have those conversations, but what we must not do is continue in rejecting or ignoring the work of the Spirit to convince you about the evidence concerning Jesus. The role of the Holy Spirit, or one of the roles of the Holy Spirit, perhaps the first one, is a role of grace to convict of sin, to convince about Jesus. But once you have permanently refused to hear the witness of the Spirit, there is nothing more that can be done for you, it seems Jesus is saying. You can question who Jesus is, but the moment you perceive, the moment those questions lead you to see that Jesus is more than a a normal man, that he is divine, that he is God in the flesh, that he has died for your sins, and he has risen back to life, something that is done in the power of the Holy Spirit, and, and that he does want to share that life with you. The moment that this is light in your soul and it warms your soul, that is the work of the Holy Spirit. Rejection of this work, of where the Holy Spirit brings you to, is spiritually fatal. That is what will not be able to be forgiven. Rejection, the Holy Spirit's work to bring your heart to fear God, to trust Jesus, to live unafraid and unashamed, to have a confidence placed in in a God who is unlimited in his knowledge of you and unrestrained in his care of you. This is the greatest confidence a person can have. And Jesus is saying, Don't ignore the offer. Let's pray. Your spirit works on our souls to convict us of sin, to bring us to truth, to bring us to a place where we go, yeah, I think this is real. I see this is real. I need Jesus in my life so that I can approach 
God with a fear that leads to intimacy, that I can see him for who he really is. Sovereign God who has authority over judgment and creation and yet uses all of that authority to care for me intimately, to hold me in place. Our prayer here this morning is that we would let your spirit work in us to warm our hearts with affection for God, to, to deepen trust in Jesus. And that as we do, that would bring us security and, and a comfort as we, as, we, as we know that we are fully known by God. That brings a confidence that we can move into a marriage and go in there and say, yeah, I got this wrong, but I, can, I know that I... It's not about me, but about where God is taking us. We can move, we can lose a job and know that that's not the end of the world. We can, we can have a, a diagnosis of some kind of terminal illness and know that that is not the end of the world, that God is still with us in that. Allows us to live uh, unafraid and unashamed. Our prayer is that we would know that as, a, as not a rule or, or some kind of... Um, Victim, but a joy, a deep joy that brings life. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.